0: Welcome back to the program. Revolutions are hard and exciting. They combine courage and new ideas and the excitement of once-in-a-generation change. However, what's even harder is what comes next. The way in which the apogee of the moment of revolutionary fervor sticks and is translated into changes in government, in bureaucratic institutions, and perhaps most importantly, in the ways in which the multilateral ideas of the divergent revolutionaries come together to shape accommodate and compromise. We know from our own American Revolution how difficult that can be. Think about it. We're still impacted by mistakes or compromises made by our founders 240 years ago. Four years ago this month, the revolution in Tahrir Square began a tectonic shift. How it happened, how it played out, and the acts of individual actions, courage, and diversity lies at the heart of Thanassis Cambanus' new book, Once Upon a Revolution. Thanasis Cambanis is a journalist who's been writing about the Middle East for more than a decade. His first book is A Privilege to Die, Inside Hezbollah's Legions. He writes the internationalist column for the Boston Globe and is a correspondent for the Atlantic. It is my pleasure to welcome Thanasis Kambanis to the program to talk about Once Upon a Revolution, an Egyptian story. Thanasis, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Jeff, great to be with you.
0: Good to have you here. One of the things you write about early on is, is almost the surprise of this revolution and how the, this went from the kind of incremental change, small, tiny change that was so much a part of the his, the recent history of the Middle East to all of a sudden a half a million people in Tahrir Square. Talk about that first.
1: Well, it was it was uh, really a confluence of events that everyone involved, uh, as well as the experts who followed this area, New was impossible. I mean, the, the, the activists, the tiny group of activists who had been working before in the years before Tahrir Square to oppose the regime, even they would tell me in interviews, uh, that they, that, that the most they expected was maybe to get a couple of hundred people to join them and maybe, maybe to get a little tiny bit of official attention. So when this, uh, pre-announced protest on January 25th began, Uh, the activists themselves, that core group of of revolutionaries, was shocked to find thousands and thousands of of people joining them. And by the time they got to Tahrir Square and filled it, I think they were even more shocked than the regime. It was really a a sign of just how broken uh, Egypt had become and just how profoundly mistreated uh, the citizens of that country felt that so many people, normal, apolitical people, uh, got to the point where they were willing to risk their lives to defy a very violent government.
0: To what extent was it spontaneous in that respect versus the degree to which individual organizers were able to really take advantage of that moment and use it to bring people together?
1: Well, it was a, it was a, it was a perfect storm. The, uh, uh, the activists, and these are the people that I that I stuck with throughout the last four years and, and, and write about uh, a great a great length in this book the activists had been uh and some of them had been going at it for 10 years uh, others for just a few months before 2011 and they had really laid uh as much groundwork as you could lay in a police state where having a, a meeting of 10 people uh would, would would could get you arrested uh so they had they had they had formed a sort of nucleus of of youth organizations and street organizations and there was also the Muslim Brotherhood which had a pretty good uh uh nationwide not get-out-the-vote organization, because we're not talking about voting, but a sort of mobilization uh, network. Now, all that that would not lead you to expect what we saw on January 25th and in the 18 days that followed. Uh, So the real uh, wild card was, would anybody join them? Uh, And there's a the, 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 the kids, uh, they're not really kids, they're in their 20s and 30s who ended up forming the Revolutionary Youth Coalition. They, they started their march on the 25th in a very poor, out of the way neighborhood where there had never been a political demonstration before. Uh, and they picked this place in part because the streets were too narrow for the riot police to get in with trucks. Uh, So on the morning of, uh, they gathered there and they had a bullhorn and they started chanting their slogans and and inviting people to come down and and march against the regime. And at that moment, they had no idea if anyone would come at all. Uh, There were, you know, maybe a dozen of them and to their surprise within an hour they were about 500 and within 2 hours they were 1000 and as they marched uh, out of this warren of, of of narrow streets more and more people came down to join them and that was that was something that that was a gamble they didn't know how it was going to turn out
0: what role did technology and social media in particular play in bringing these people together
1: well the 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 twitter and facebook elements of the Arab uprising often gets overstated mm. by sort of breathless uh, techno evangelists. <laughs> but there, there was one key, uh, key role that it did play, and it was provide, it provided a forum for the activists to get to know each other better in the years before the uprising. So it wasn't, it wasn't Twitter or Facebook uh, that made regular people willing to go out and get shot. Uh, that was, you know, essentially uh, a cascading set of personal decisions where regular folks said, you know what, I'm so fed up, I'm willing to get killed because I've had enough. Uh, but Facebook and, and Twitter came in in the, in the lead up where you had activists from very different camps, like... Uh, uh Muadud abdul kareem the Muslim brother Bassam Kamel the the secular architect or the revolutionary socialist the 6th of April all these folks from very different backgrounds and they would run into each other in the mid 2000s at the tiny protest that occurred in Cairo uh and because There's no public space allowed, no public freedom of discourse, really, uh, for political speech. Uh, Those protests would have led to nothing had it not been for the online community in which those activists could then retreat and continue their conversation. And it was through mostly Facebook uh, that those activists became friends, grew to trust each other across divides, Islamists trusting secular, leftists trusting rightist nationalists. And that was... Uh, the sort of mechanism that enabled them to get together, get close, and form uh, institutions like the evolutionary youth coalition
0: as this coalition came together as these protests came together, to what extent was it about what you were talking about a moment ago people being fed up versus any kind of affirmative agenda initially
1: well that's that's one of the uh, one of the enduring uh, handicaps let's say of the dissident and revolutionary movement in Egypt. And I think it's probably a common, uh, a common problem in any place that's try, trying to break out of uh, a history of authoritarianism or oppression. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, easy, uh, it's easy to say, let's kill the king. It's very hard uh, to say, what is the kind of system of government you would like to erect in its place? And uh, these, uh, these revolutionaries, and I mean, you know, some of them aren't that revolutionary, right? Some of them are quite modest, incremental reformists. There are people who, in our political spectrum, wouldn't seem radical at all. Uh, and then there are people who are genuinely radical. When it came down to the, the moment when, uh, when the old regime got nervous and, and, and sort of faltered, uh, when these leaders and activists were asked, what what would you what would you like what do you want what should, what should take the place of the old system? Many of them uh either lost their nerve or simply didn't didn't have an idea. They had focused all their time on figuring out how to oppose power uh they didn't they didn't have a blueprint uh and today now for four years since Tahrir uh some of these folks are only now starting to grapple really in earnest and systematically with this question. Now that they've been defeated uh, and they have the time and space, they're, they're realizing that uh, the next time this comes, they need to have an answer to that question of, of what next.
0: One of the ironies that seems to have been baked into this was an inherent distrust of, of the ideas of politics and of strong leadership to begin with. In many ways, that seemed to have worked against the effort.
1: Yes, the uh, the regimes that ruled Egypt really successfully uh, uh, peddled this idea that engaging in politics or seeking leadership uh, made you selfish, made you self-promotional, and uh, sadly for them, the, a lot of the revolutionary activists really internalized that idea. So when someone would say would would suggest in Tahrir Square, hey, let's let's start a political party. Or hey, we should elect a secretariat so that when the army comes to talk to us, we have some leaders who can get a delegation who can go meet with them and, and relay our demands. They would immediately be shouted down as sellouts. You know, who? What you want? You want power? You want a chair? You want to take charge? There's no leaders here, and that uh, that really tripped up uh, a, a lot of the the good energy. Of the revolution. Um, one, of, uh, one of the people who I've followed very closely in, in, throughout this transition is, is this uh, man I alluded to a minute ago, Bassam Kamo, a secular architect. He uh, helped co found a, a secular, uh, moderate, liberal party called the Social Democratic Party. And really, from the beginning, uh, he and, and the friends who did that were, were labeled as sellouts. Uh, and is power-hungry uh, simply for uh, choosing to continue their struggle in the, in the realm of politics. And today he's running for parliament again, uh, and he faces not only opprobrium from, from the regime that he's opposing, but also from his old revolutionary comrades for the very act of, of pursuing change through political means.
0: In many ways, this was a vacuum that the Muslim Brotherhood later on would really begin to fill.
1: Right. I mean, the the uh, the the way I like to think of it is um, is that at a, at the key moment where the old uh, sort of the old systems of power were threatened, and we're talking about 2000 and the year most the year of 2011, uh, everyone who was established got nervous and thought, "Holy uh, moly! These these, these young uh, daring people are are turning are turning the established order things on its head." Uh, but when they saw that those forces weren't as well organized as, as they expected, uh, they, they all were able to revert to the familiar, to the people who did, who did essentially have a phone number and an office. And that meant the military uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood uh, was, was the first non-revolutionary group that was able to, to position itself uh, somewhat dishonestly as being a leader of the revolution, and today we see the military having done that. There's a military dictatorship reestablished in Egypt, and they're the first, uh, uh, the first to use the rhetoric uh, and positioning of revolution to to, to legitimize uh, their agenda. So, so today you have this very uh, sad and opportunistic case where. Uh, the Egyptian army and the Muslim Brotherhood are, comp- are fighting over who's the true revolutionary uh, steward or who-, who owns the legacy of the revolution, when really uh, both of them were anti-revolutionary in-, in all the ways that mattered.
0: In that sense, to put it in, in very Manichaean terms, did the revolution fail of its own mistakes or was it defeated?
1: I I believe it was defeated uh, uh, primarily. I mean, the, the, if they had done everything right, uh, the, the the force deployed against them and the, the staying power and resilience of this security state that, that it was carefully engineered over sixty years uh, with all kinds of ways of suppressing and crushing people and of manipulating and, and mobilizing public opinion is a very formidable uh, foe. Uh, but uh, that so, so it was it was crushed. It was beaten rather than uh, that, that, it, that it sort of tripped and failed of its own accord, but it made really key mistakes. These things we're talking about, these divisions, these uh, uh, reflexive rejections of leadership, the poverty of ideas uh, to present as alternatives to power, those, uh, those shortcomings, those mistakes— uh, have to be addressed within the the community of political opposition and dissent if there's ever going to be a different outcome and i think it's uh, i think it's all but guaranteed uh unfortunately for egypt that that country is going to reach a breaking point again quite soon because all the core grievances remain all the same techni- tactics of misrule and uh uh, impoverishment of of the public are, are are present, just the same ones that made made Egypt snap in 2011. When it does, the outcome will be no better unless uh, and until these these forces that oppose the the regime uh, have managed to come up with a real political agenda and in a, a unified way of organizing and, and, and bridging their divides. Is there a
0: sense, and it, a lot of it comes out in, in the three or four people that really are at the focus of your story, but is there a sense of, internally, of the kind of mistakes, the kind of issues that we've been talking about, is that sort of worked its way into the discussion within Egypt in terms of looking at why it failed?
1: Well, let's uh, let's be clear that, that, that the... the Group of people who are grappling with with those questions is very small. So, uh, uh, you ask about what's happening within Egypt. Broadly speaking, within Egypt right now, public opinion is in favor of the restored dictatorship. So if you're looking on, on, uh, you know, the television shows or if you just go and, and interview random people in the street, what you'll hear is uh, a lot of uh, joy and relief that there's a strong man back in charge. Uh, but the small community of folks who I think actually make things happen and will, will affect, uh, uh, affect politics and political change in that community. That conversation has begun. It's begun, uh, really since, (laughs) since a year and a half ago, when, when the military coup toppled the first and only elected civilian president At, at, at that juncture, a lot of the, uh, activists began questioning themselves and asking, uh, where, where did we go wrong? What part did we play in this? Um, what, uh, What kinds of new ideas do we need now that conversation is is taking place in uh, a lot in prisons uh, in the prison cells where where a lot of the most important dissidents are being held uh, and in exile uh, where a lot of the uh, secular and Islamist uh, dissidents and activists have had to flee Uh, and, and you know I'm people ask me if I'm optimistic. Uh, I, I don't know how this turns out, so I can't say it definitely turns out great, but I'm optimistic in the sense that this was a conversation that never took place before, uh, and now, despite a, an incredible amount of violence and repression being turned against them, it, it is taking place. This conversation is taking place uh, among uh, the activist community.
0: Of course, one of the things you touched on earlier in our conversation is this perfect storm that came together four years ago, and the question of whether those elements can ever come together in the same way again seems like an open question.
1: Yeah, the the uh, uh, you know a lot of the uh, dissidents are very bitterly angry at each other uh, as much as they are at the at the regime. I mean, the uh, one of the the. Chapters of this transition period is the the chapter in which the the Muslim Brotherhood sided with the military uh, and then later sought s- so much power for itself that it, it effectively uh, derailed the entire prospects for of, of reform and change so today, because of that, uh, secular and Islamist dissidents have have a huge amount of acrimony uh, toward toward each other uh, and that um, that ha Unless that's overcome, uh, we will never recapture that kind of, um, that kind of, uh, energy and momentum that we saw in, in Square in 2011. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the impact of of violent misrule uh, can be profound. And uh, uh, a year ago, it seemed impossible to imagine the Islamists and the secular activists uh, coming together again. Uh, Today, it's a little easier to imagine. And, and when one sees the pictures from this weekend of, of, uh, uh, innocent, nonviolent protesters murdered at point blank by Egyptian police, and those pictures are circulating even in Egypt, despite the state's effort to to, to censor the the local media. Uh, I don't think we can we can underestimate the impact that's going to have. I mean, it's it's a tectonic pressure. It's like a it's like a volcano. Uh, the 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 pressure on the on the on the people in, in that country. So. I, I would actually not be surprised if sooner even sooner even than than uh, uh, than activists want uh, that, that that we'll see all these all these disparate threads once again be willing uh, uh, as a result of their common grievances to come together against against the regime.
0: On the other side, though, what did the authoritarian state and its leaders learn from this experience that they might do differently next time?
1: Well, uh, this, new, this new regime is, uh, uh, for starters, much more vigorous and youthful and, and energetic than Mubarak's regime. I mean, Sisi, uh, General Abdel Fattah Sisi, the new dictatorial ruler of Egypt, is uh, almost three decades younger than Mubarak was. Uh, he uh, is also ruling from a different base. Uh, he is almost exclusively drawing on military men. Uh, as his advisors and, and key, uh, key official positions, uh, that, that means many things. Uh, it means he has a, a reliable and much more trusted base because he, he comes out of the military. So uh, uh, his clique is, is more, I would say, more uh, isolated and probably has fewer inputs and good ideas coming into it, but it's also probably more reliably uh, in his camp. He's also been willing, clearly since the beginning, uh, to use a lot more force uh, to crush dissent. I mean, you know, some uh, supporters of the regime in Egypt argued that Mubarak's big mistake was not just clearing Tahrir Square, using force to clear Tahrir Square on day one and calling the whole thing off. And clearly that is the approach that the Sisi regime is using. That's the lesson they learned was not not to allow a steam valve to, uh, of political release because it could lead to something uh, more threatening. Uh, uh, I, I think, uh, from having read history and having watched the region for 10 years, that that is not a technique that's going to work, but it certainly is, is his, his innovative uh, approach.
0: Your own personal perspective, you start the story really talking about your own cynicism for change in the Middle East. Where, how, do, how does that stand up today?
1: i mean it it's a, it's a mixed bag uh it's certainly it's certainly sad to see people who uh, who briefly had had dreams of something better now reverting to cheerleading for for a military regime uh, but on the, on the whole uh i i would re, I retain that sense of some of that sense of wonder and admiration and hope that came out of watching uh, these brave people take to the streets in 2011 and spend the subsequent years pushing for change. Uh, the 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 big the big story here is the, I mean the, the overall historical arc here is uh, after half a century of political uh, stasis and stalemate. Forced by oppressive regimes, we have people who, who have just decided unilaterally that they are going to invent new politics, that they are going to force a better and more just relationship uh, between power uh, and the people who are governed, uh, and they're continuing that. Uh, and, and, you know, when you read the prison letters that al abdus is writing, or you look at even these independent news websites that are reporting uh, on, on the, the, the community of dissenters, you see people who, even today, are willing to go on the record criticizing the regime with their name, with their picture, doing things that, that no one was brave enough to do in 2010. And today you have hundreds of people willing to do it. And, and, and that tells me that a process, a generational process of creating a new politics has begun we don't know where it will lead, but we know that it will lead to something different.
0: And finally, what's the ripple effect beyond Egypt? The, the degree to which all that we've been talking about has impacted other areas and other parts of the Middle East?
1: Well, the, the, the big ideas, political ideas in the Arab world tend to come out of Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood came out of Egypt, Arab nationalism came out of Egypt, and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, today's Backlash against revolution is, uh, pe- people justify it, uh, by what happened in Egypt. Uh, I think ultimately whatever new political thought, uh, uh, forms in that country, and including, uh, the, the school of, uh, renewed military repression that Sisi is, is the leader of, uh, will be, uh, what will set the agenda for the region. I mean, people around the Arab world, uh, tend to talk about, uh, Egyptian this and Egyptian that as a template for their approach. Uh, and I think, ultimately, the legacy of Tahrir Square, the legacy of a sort of Arab democracy, is going to be a powerful one throughout the region.
0: Thanassis Cambanis, his book is Once Upon a Revolution, an Egyptian Story. Thanassis, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: It's great to talk to you.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.